Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, I want to discuss rookies or young players. The backstory is I've been making a lot of YouTube videos recently on rookies. Just did Trey Young last week. That's up on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. Before that, we looked at Jaron Jackson Jr., Luka Doncic, and probably going to get to at least one. I would like to get to two more rookies, but we'll see what the schedule permits. And the idea is that when you look at these players and you try to forecast, it's one thing to analyze where they are now and look at their game, but there's a component of putting them under a microscope at this age where you we naturally want to know, you know, what are they going to turn into when they get older? What's that ceiling? Most players we tend to view as some shell of themselves that they can grow into or they can grow out of, right? It's just a, it's just a casing. Can we see the skeleton on the wall that they can put some meat and bones on? And I'm more interested or, or in doing this, I've become very interested in how often players actually reach their ceiling. You know, how do we outline the ceiling? How do we draw those lines on the paper and say, all right, I can see this guy improving his jumper. If he learns how to operate and pick and roll like this, uh, he's very quick and very tall. So that first step is going to give him great advantages when he puts on 15 pounds of muscle. All of the kind of natural maturing things that we do when we look at players are the maturing things that we expect when we look at players. And so the question for me is, what number or what what percentage of guys who are really good get really good by filling into that ceiling and what percentage of guys who are really really good break the ceiling break the mold do something different come out of nowhere so that's the perspective we're going to take today so we'll get to that but first I wanted to briefly share and recount my experience at the Sloan MIT conference I went there last week for the first time, which is very fun, very exciting. Uh, It's uh, technically the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, SSAC, and it takes place in Boston around this time every year. They've been doing it for, I don't know, 15 years or something of that order. And my biggest takeaway from the conference, so there's a couple things to realize. First, the actual panels or the conference Uh, events that you go to some of them are now streamed online so you can check those out at sloan sports analytics conference or ssac on youtube they have the major panels streaming there and then there are a lot of breakout or side little if you've ever been to a professional conference it's the same drill where you have speakers presenting their research it's a nice touch if you're interested in some of those research papers to hear that but the 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 star of the show if you will isn't necessarily the events of the conference. It's all the people who are there, all the socializing and the networking. And my biggest takeaway on that front is the kinds of people who are there are not merely are not merely your sort of analytics nerds, if you will. It's not just a bunch of guys from analytics departments or engineers. It really felt more like a holistic basketball dominant event. There are some other sports there. Uh, I went to a very fun discussion on curling strategy. Uh, But 
in the hallway when people are presenting new technologies and things like that. It's very basketball focused and it didn't feel like it was a stats heavy basketball event all the time. So you have a lot of executives there, you have a lot of analytics guys there, but you also have a lot of general NBA folks, a lot of general NBA media, ESPN's The Jump was there, some of the speakers are a little more casual. And I I wanted to share that because I think it's a very promising and exciting time where we're starting to merge analytics out of its own little bucket and into the larger perspective of, look, this is just measuring context. So every time we talk about eye, eye test, every time we talk about feel, every time we talk about a skill that can be measured and we use that measurement to augment our information in a way because we can't count all those things all the time. And I think that's a great stride forward that just about every NBA team seems to be, if, you know, maybe the progressive ones are getting there first, but more and more teams are moving there and pulling the so-called stat head out of the basement. And I think that uh, is really great progress. Can't speak for the Lakers, but most other organizations seem to be headed in that direction. Okay, so the question is, if we were to take all of the great players and look at them, how many of them are just guys that start with a really high, like they just already are really good when they come into the league, or they fill into this potential that we can clearly see? So for example, LeBron James. Tim Duncan, although he was really good when he came into the league. Uh, I would say Kobe Bryant fits this bill. How, how many of those guys really filled out and hit their ceiling? We saw the potential. They followed the path. So again, it's not looking at hundreds or thousands of young prospects and saying from those prospects, who becomes a star? I'm inverting the question here, and I'm saying, of the players who are stars, like we have a guaranteed pool of superstars at any given time, whether it's two or four or nine, whatever, those guys exist. And from them, how many surprised us? How many achieved this by blowing past their ceiling in some way? That's the question I want to answer today. So to do that, just for simplicity, I looked at the play-by-play era which is 1997 to now, so a little over 20 years. Uh, Basically, I'm trying to uh, account for a more modern game, a more spaced-out game, a more three-point-heavy game. Of course, there's been an incredible boom in spacing and three-point shooting in the last couple seasons. But still, if you compare uh, the 70s or the 80s or even early 90s, it's, it's kind of night and day on that front. So... Within that era. Also, we have more data around these players, so it's just a little easier for objective purposes to say, here's my categories of stars or superstars. I really, really care in this conversation about the real high-end players. I'm not even sure I care if you're the 10th best player in the league. Really, those top MVP guys. So this has been running through my brain as I look at these young prospects, and I'm a huge, huge fan of this year's rookie class, have been since I started to dig into them last year in the spring. And, 
you know, the question is how many of these guys will be in the MVP conversation one day? I think Luka Doncic will be. How many how many other guys will we look at and say, this is a Hall of Fame or borderline Hall of Fame career, and not just because the guy played 18 seasons or something? That's the premise. So it turns out there actually aren't that many superstars since 1997, so it's going to be a relatively small sampled exercise. But we're going to be saddled with that anyway, even if we used a more objective measure or went back to 1980 or something, it doesn't matter. There's still only going to be a few dozen of these players. Just think about your all-time greatest players list and think about the 108th best player of all time. That's not the kind of ceiling we're talking about here. And in fact, I look at my list and I've even been kind of generous to include a couple guys like Paul Pierce or Kyrie Irving in the conversation. Okay. Let's let's first look at the list. All right, I, I listed out guys who have been legitimate superstars, top five players, things of that nature. First, guys who have, in my estimation, hit their ceiling. And by the way, to do this, you can go back and you can look at draft profiles written. There's a there's a bunch of historical profiles in the last 10, 11, 12 years on NBADraft.net. Um, other publications, you can dig up old draft profiles on guys. So you're not just reading one person's perspective. Of course, I was around for all of these. So I have a pretty good memory of what people were saying. And I even have some of my own notes on some of these players going back into the two thousands. So keep that in mind. Uh, if, if needed on some of these guys, I will actually read some specifics about them, but for the major guys, I, I think we can all kind of trust or agree that something big was there. Guys who hit their ceiling. I got 11 guys on this list that hit their ceiling, and two of them are kind of lesser players that uh, I'm including. Um, We could throw them out if we wanted to, but trying to get a slightly larger sample. So those 11 guys, to me, that hit their ceiling, meaning they filled into the kind of player that we thought they could be as they matured, as they added polish, as they added repetitions, as they added weight, things of this nature. LeBron James, Tim Duncan, although Tim Duncan was, by virtue of playing four years in college, very good as a senior in college, as he demonstrated immediately in the NBA. He he wasn't, Tim Duncan wasn't just good as a rookie by the end of the year. He was good immediately in like his first week because he was probably one of the better players in the world as a senior at Wake Forest. So LeBron James, Tim Duncan, Kobe Bryant. Now, some people might want to nitpick that, you know, Kobe left shot selection on the table or he didn't have the motor of some of the other. I think it's fairly, fairly reasonable to say Kobe Bryant hit his ceiling, MVP, all-time level player, and really became the guy, you know, There's a a draft profile that I read on him researching this podcast that talks about how he played all five positions in college and that they thought he'd play point guard. Well, excuse me, uh, in high school. If you watch any of the footage, some of it is actually available on YouTube, and you can see the games. He plays a point guard-type role, which is really just an outdated way of saying he's the lead initiator of the offense. So he had primary ball-handling responsibilities, 
in high school, and he would either turn that into a score or a good look for a teammate. Uh, I think that helps explain why he was actually a pretty good playmaker uh, right from the get-go. People said, oh, well, what position is he going to play? He played all five positions in high school. That That's not the purpose of this exercise. The purpose of this exercise is to say, this guy had these physical tools. He had the pull-up jumper. He had the vision to create. He had uh, the physical tools to be a good defender, et cetera, et cetera. Did he fill into all those things? Yep. Kevin Durant is another guy. I was really high on Kevin Durant. I was a Durant over Odin guy a little over a decade ago when they came out. And, you know, people looked at Durant. Bill Simmons has a, a column that he wrote that I'm sure some people must remember because he, I think it was his rookie year and he was, or maybe his second year, and he was saying, you know, Durant, if you look at what's going on here, no one can stop him from getting his shot off. So if he can play better defense, learn to play better defense, use his length, his passing will come along naturally. It has. And look at his shooting splits. He's actually going to be in part two of this where uh, I talk a little bit about the shooting splits. If you look at his shooting splits, the guy was a monster shooter. And so what you said is, all right, if he can get to the line a little bit more, he's an 85, 90% free throw shooter. The three-point shot will come along. This is a guy that could average 33, 34, 35 points a game on monster efficiency. That's exactly what happened. Kevin Durant reached his ceiling. Uh, Another guy put on there, Dwight Howard. Physical specimen, grew into his frame, grew into his body. Defensive player. Again, some people will nitpick about his offense. He never had, he was never slated to be a a dominant post player with a touch, hook, fadeaway game. He was a power player, and he was a very effective power player. Some of the best rim gravity you could ever find on offense. Dirk Nowitzki is another guy. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki was an unknown, but I think for what Dirk Nowitzki was, or if you saw him play as a sort of (laughs) bumbling, overwhelmed rookie, you saw this seven-foot guy who could shoot threes, who could put the ball on the floor, who could maybe play multiple forward positions, and how are you going to stop that? He's just going to become, uh, you know, he's a great shooter. So Dirk Nowitzki. Anthony Davis, uh, hopefully for obvious reasons. Uh, I don't think he's fulfilled his defensive potential, but I certainly think he's excelled on offense by adding the shot, adding mid-range, touch, etc., etc. Uh, Giannis, hopefully that's obvious. Now, it's a little weird because Giannis was so young when he came onto the scene. So as a draft prospect, if you read about Giannis, he's literally a couple inches shorter than he is right now. He has very little game experience. He played in a secondary league in Europe. There's, It's just weird to judge him based on that. I'm judging Giannis based more on, well, we got to see him as a rookie. We got to see him as a rookie and then summer league and then his second year. And he's a teenager and all that stuff. What do we think he can do? And I think there was very clear excitement at that point in time that with his physical tools, with his hands, with his quickness, with his wingspan, that overall length and height, that this guy could be a monster because of the way he moves. What people were, is he going to play point guard? You know, how, how do you stop this? In many ways, that's exactly what Giannis has become. I don't think of him as the position positionless revolution, but. He is a monster on defense and um, just physically 
probably the most physically overwhelming player in the lane since Shaq. I'm excited to do a video on him later in the year. Uh, the other two guys I put on this hit the ceiling list are lesser players. They never really were at that MVP level, but going through the drafts and researching some of the uh, old pieces, uh, very similar kind of excitement about both of these players as wings. One is Paul Pierce. The other is Vince Carter. Now, again, people might nitpick Vince Carter because he was one of those guys labeled the next Jordan back when everyone needed to be labeled the next Jordan. But he never really demonstrated a variety of skills, either as a shooter or as a playmaker in college, or even, you know, maybe maybe he underwhelmed as a defender. But I think the guy he became, the physical tools, the jumper, the drive game, the overall kind of off, I mean, he was never a great passer, but he became an offensive centerpiece. Pierce, very similar. If you read about Pierce, people were shocked that he dropped below the third pick in the draft. He was almost universally regarded to be a top three pick because of the skills around his shooting, his jumper, his strength. He had those very broad shoulders. And so all these guys hit their ceiling. Now we get into the group of players who kind of, uh, let's say, went slightly beyond their ceiling. They, they, they broke their ceiling, but they didn't blow right through it. And for that, I came up with five guys. Some of them may be a little debatable, but interesting going back. And again, I lived through this period. If you're old enough to remember what people were saying about these players, this will ring a bell. But the five guys I earmarked were Dwayne Wade, Chris Paul, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Russell Westbrook. Now, there are different degrees here. With Wade, Wade was a very interesting prospect. He kind of burst onto the scene as Marquette at Marquette. I believe he was academically ineligible. He didn't play right away. And then he had uh, two really huge years that ended with a tournament run that was earth-shattering with a triple-double against Kentucky. And the biggest thing for him at that point in time, being a tweener was a big deal. Being a tweener is less of a big deal today. I think people are a little more comfortable with the fluidity of positions, with combo guards. We've now really set a precedent in the last 10 or 15 years in terms of playing different combinations of players where it doesn't matter what your size is if you're good off the ball. As long as you're not a total defensive sieve, if we pair you with the right players, you can play off the ball if you're 6'1 or 6'5. And similarly, on the ball. You can, if you're not a true point guard, you can still play on the ball and be paired with, I love the, the Derek Fisher archetype here. You get that 3 and D guy who's smaller than Kobe. He can handle some ball handling responsibilities, but you really want him off the ball as a spacer and shooter. So Wade comes into the league. That was not an extremely common position for a lot of teams. And as a result, people were extremely worried about him being a tweener. That was the... He had size concerns. If you go back and read uh, the profiles, what position is he going to play? He's undersized for a point guard. There's a specific quote from a scout in one of the profiles I read or reread this week that says, hey, he's listed at 6'4". Height inflation is a thing. This was before the, the draft measurement, I guess. Height inflation was a thing, and so I wouldn't be surprised if he's even shorter and he's 6'2 or 6'3". Now, 
the interesting thing to note about Dwayne Wade and something he was the first player that really put this on my radar. He plays much bigger than he's listed. In fact, he's the all-time leader in block shots from the guard position, and in my opinion, he is indeed probably the best shot-blocking guard of all time. He's 6'3 and change without shoes. NBA players today, and for many decades, have been measured at their height with shoes, and depending on how tall you actually are, a lot of people round up. Okay? In Wade's instance... He's more like 6'5 in shoes. There's some reason that he was more comfortable. I don't. You never know the story here. Maybe he wanted it. Maybe some guy at Marquette did it and it just stuck. But he's actually more like a 6'5 guy than a 6'4 guy. That's number one. Number two, and he again, he was the first player to really put this on my radar. His wingspan or true height is significantly taller than a 6'4 guy. So his wingspan is like 6'10". And if you go back to the famous dunk on Anderson Verjao, you can see how much arm Dwayne Wade has. Like he he is very long. So he, you know, he doesn't need to jump that high to dunk on people. So I think, I think people missed the boat on Wade. First of all, he was a top five pick. Everyone was excited about him. He had a great rookie year. But I don't think it's fair... In retrospect, I think he even exceeded the expectations based on, I mean, people said, does he have a mid-range jumper? Can he shoot? Well, one of the things that propelled him toward the conversation of best player in the world just a couple years after being in the league was how dominant his mid-range shot was in the 2006 playoffs. It's a long time ago, mid-range game. And then, of course, when he came back from injury, a couple years near the top of the league in the conversation with Kobe Bryant and LeBron James as the best player in the world again. And certainly no height issues with Wade on offense or defense or on the glass. He's a great rebounder as well. So I think the lesson there, people kind of had Wade in the right ballpark in terms of his growth projections, but they missed out on the fact that he really wasn't a small player. So that was a lesson. Second guy who I think went slightly past his ceiling is Chris Paul. Chris Paul, I've got notes from his draft uh, out of Wake Forest as a sophomore. I thought he was the next Isaiah Thomas. The thing with Chris Paul is he's been much better than Isaiah Thomas. He's been really good defensively. A lot of that is using using, uh, strength to overcome size, using that low center of gravity. He put on a tremendous amount of weight over the years that helped him there, but also just quick, great hands. Um, the other thing about Paul, and this was in some of his scouting profiles when he was in college, a ridiculously good shooter. So you put all that together, and I mean, I think he was, I, I don't think anyone in a couple years thought he'd be a legitimate MVP candidate. And that's what he became. And in terms of career, a lot of people know this from my point of view, one of the you know, 25 best careers in NBA history. A great prime stretch set of seasons. So how did he do that? Maybe the ability to add strength, maybe the ability to be a better shooter than we thought, 
maybe just uh, lead guards impacting the game more than we realized at that point in time. Let me do Russell Westbrook before I get to Kawhi and Paul George. Russell Westbrook, very similar to Dwayne Wade. What's his position? Is he a tweener? Is he too small? The comparison, just so people have a frame of reference, Monte Ellis was the guy that Westbrook was compared to, which is to say he's not a pure point guard. He's athletic and quick. He can get into the teeth of the defense. And at that point in time, Monte Ellis was considered a pretty big deal. And so for Westbrook, for me, it's he was an incredible athlete, but he was probably a better athlete than we realized in terms of rebounding, uh, verticality, finishing at the rim, and the passing. Just uh, evolved into an absolutely fantastic passer. And that combination, it's like it doesn't matter if you're 6'1 or 6'3 or 6'5. I mean, it matters if you're 6'1 if you can't jump and don't have long arms. But his size ended up not being a concern. In the Trey Young video, I really one of the things I really noticed was how many players under 6'3 are great players? You can be good under 6'3, but how many great players are under 6'3? Chris Paul is one of the few, in my opinion, in the whole history of the league. And I'm not saying 6'3 is a magic cutoff point, but at a certain point, when it comes to getting your shot off or finishing in the lane, if you've got short arms or you actually don't have that true height quality, Dwayne Wade's right 6'3 and change without shoes. But he's got that 6'10 wingspan. Westbrook, I don't know, his shoe measurement off the top of my head, 6'2 and change, I think. But he plays like a monster. So what's the theme with Wade and Westbrook? It's size versus functional size. And I think those are lessons we've learned. Chris Paul, I, I don't know, maybe he was a better shooter or the ability for point guards at that point in time, lead guards who were that skilled, who could also hold their own on defense, which maybe is something that he exceeded expectations with, ends up being better than we thought. These two guys are a little more clear-cut. These two guys didn't quite make the third category for me. Third category is blue through the ceiling. And those guys were really the genesis of this podcast idea in my head. The two guys, of course, uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Now, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George were considered more of defensive specialists or 3 and D types or really well-rounded players. Uh, Kawhi was never a monster scorer in college. He was a skilled all-around guy, great athlete, monster hands, good size. And so if you read about his strengths and weaknesses, and this is certainly um, representative of how I think most people felt even when he was a young player with the Spurs. He was a mid-round draft pick because he lacked a pull-up jumper. He lacked easy ways to self-create and self-generate his own offense. He wasn't a great scorer. He wasn't a great shooter. And his growth in those areas, uh, yes, as a shooter, but even more so now, many years later, it's crazy to see how this guy his best asset as an offensive player is ability to self-generate pull-up jumpers. That was the thing people were saying he missed the most. Paul George, 
very similar. The knock on him was scoring or self-generated offense. He was a tremendously gifted shooter as a teenager. I'm not sure. That might have been overlooked at the time by scouts, but the data was there. So I don't want to I don't want to paint it as something that people missed because certainly I'm sure there were a lot of folks who looked at that and said, whoa, this guy's a ridiculously good shooter. He changed his shot form and shot release over the years. Not uncommon for guys who aren't naturally gifted in that in that uh, dimension. It's smoother, it's a little bit higher, it's closer to his head, all these things. If you go back and look at I was looking at film for this on his summer league performance when he came into the league. So Kawhi and Paul George, to me, fit the same kind of archetypical lesson, which is that if you have um, guys who are monster athletes, who have a 3 and D bay, I mean, they're both very big. They have great physical tools. They had some semblance of self-generated scoring in college and early on, but not much. But Kawhi, one of the things Kawhi did very well off the top of my head wasn't necessarily his pull-up jumper. It was using strength and the ability to get to the rim. And he has that in spades now. He's so strong on his drives. So strong. Maybe the lesson with those guys is if you've got all the other things going in your favor and you have a a modicum of skill that you flash as a shooter or a a pull-up mid-range guy, that maybe you can develop that. And you can hammer that home and develop that and make it a strength. But of course, the only reason why they're on this list, this superstar MVP list, and not a bunch of, you know, sort of mid-level guys who made some all-star teams, is because they also had the tools, right? They didn't blow through their ceiling. They went slightly past it because of this, because they filled out as defenders, they filled out in those other key areas that people liked them. Yeah, you're a super, supercharged 3 and D guy, but they just transcend that by becoming, you know, offensive centerpieces in their own right. Okay, finally, the guys we've been waiting for. This was the whole purpose of this exercise for me, was to look at players who reached this superstar level and did it by by blowing through their ceiling, by there is no reasonable person on earth who thought these players could ever be this good. There was just no evidence for it. There was no reason to think it. And there was no way to imagine it in your mind's eye. You couldn't look at them and say, well, if he adds a little of this and a little of that, it'll be Michael Jordan. No, no one saw this from these players. And that, again, is the genesis of this podcast idea, but it's also where I think we can have the most learning in terms of, so I wanted to think about this in terms of scouting and projecting prospects when we look at guys today or even from the last few years two or three years and also the lessons we can learn uh, excuse me the the percentage of guys who we just know down the road like it's guaranteed down the road that some guy whether it's in the next five years or 20 years some guy is going to be a superstar from this kind of crop of players it may be It may not be this particular draft class, but the young players that are in the league right now, what's the percentage that one of those guys, excuse me, what's the percentage of superstars down the road who's going to come from one of those guys who you just can't see it? There's no way to reasonably see it. And why? Okay. 
So those guys for me, there's five guys I earmarked. One is a maybe. We'll just put him off over on the side for a second. And that is uh, Nikola Jokic. And he just does it in such an atypical way. Can't wait to wait. Can't wait to uh, to make a video on him as well. Jokic could fit anywhere anywhere in here, but I think it's a, a glaring omission if we don't talk about the forty first pick, who's now borderline MVP candidate. Okay, the four guys that really got me thinking about this in no order: Steph Curry, Draymond Green, James Harden, Steve Nash. Now. What that leaves us with is it leaves us with, let's say, 20, just as a round number, superstar players from the last uh, 20 or so years. Again, you have to be in that uh, 96-97 draft class, and there's going to be a couple other guys here and there that you might think of, the Derek Roses of the world and whatnot, and say, oh, is he a super? Well, just let's go with this list. It's a little tighter. They've proved it for more years. Oh, I think I forgot to mention Tracy McGrady earlier, a guy who hit his ceiling. Again, you could quibble with whether uh, his effort actually got him all the way there, but by and large, uh, an NBA superstar in the running for best player in the league, and he did it by rounding out in all these areas. Oh, if Tracy could do that, if he could do... Well, he did it. Okay. That leaves us with four superstars from this crop, four players who are all-time level players, and yes, Draymond Green doesn't have the longevity, but... He's a guy who uh, is about as good as you can get in today's game without being a decent scorer, self-creator, self-generating offense kind of guy. He's about as good as you can get for a complimentary piece when you have a star offensive player. And the thing that's fascinating to me about Green is no one saw it coming in any capacity. You can read every article... You can uh, look at how he was covered at Michigan State. You know, he was the dancing bear. Yes, he was a good passer. He was a a big glue guy, senior, big play guy. But no one said, there isn't one place that I've ever seen that wrote, you know, if Draymond Green just lost 20 pounds and completely dedicated himself to defense, he could be the best defensive player in the world and a game changer. And when you pair that with his passing and you put him on a great team, he's a supercharged championship ring-acquiring vehicle. And he'll break a bunch of stats, too. Not break, but um, he has some of the best on-off, plus-minus kind of stats you'll ever see because of this. This is the second-round pick. This is the 35th pick in the draft. Who was an upperclassman at a, at a grinded-out Big Ten program. And all the focus was on whether he could get his own jumper off. And he was too slow. So, lesson there, maybe, is if there's room for physical overhaul and you have some kind of preternatural or gifted basketball IQ that you show on one end, maybe it can translate to the other. Or maybe specifically if you have some kind of vision or awareness on offense and people describe you as a glue guy and all this, and you're making, you have flashes of defense, maybe if you upgrade your physical tools and massively improve your conditioning, you can be a defensive monster. Oh, there is another lesson to be had with Green. Everyone said he was undersized and he didn't have a position. He was a tweener. People thought he would play the three or the four. They couldn't figure out which forward he'd play. Well, again, much like Dwayne Wade, he had a seven foot three wingspan. 
And that's exactly what allows him to play center, defend center, and protect the rim pretty well. He's not the greatest rim protector in the history of elite defenders, but he's quite a good rim protector. And a lot of it comes from that wingspan. Let's do Steph Curry next, his teammate. Steph Curry just took a particular skill and changed the geometry of the game by playing it differently. So what if I just shoot 15 threes a game instead of four? I mean, that's the that's the short of it. Obviously, he's the greatest shooter of all time, and that helps. And, and well, I think people were very high on him as a shooter at Davidson, and he had an astounding rookie year as a shooter. I don't think people thought, oh, this guy's just going to be better than any other shooter we've ever seen. So hard, kind of hard to take a lesson away there. But are there places where you can see someone else gaining an advantage in the game that's very hard to counteract in a way that is atypical, that hasn't really been tested? So shooting a lot of threes or shooting a lot of deep threes was Curry's method. Is there something else with a post player or something? I don't know. He may be the most difficult to kind of learn from, ironically. James Harden. Now, James Harden, James Harden, I think, has a very deep lesson for all of us, but also very hard to implement. I think the lesson for Harden is rule exploitation combined with steady growth like he didn't jump in any particular area he just got stronger and stronger broader shoulders more muscle slowly added it his he's a good shooter he just got slightly better and better and better as a shooter he's not in the all-time shooting club he's not one of the all-time elite shooters but he's a very good shooter he was a good shooter when he was younger but he just continued to develop He was a great pick-and-roll player in Oklahoma City. I don't know if that was easily foreseeable when he was at Arizona State. One of the things that I wasn't high on when when he was at Arizona State was his size and his ability to get his shot off. But it turns out he uses rhythm and, you know, the fact that he's left-handed and throws people off and then the step back, all, all these things work together to enhance the skills that are already there. So Harden's the kind of guy, unlike Curry and Green, Harden's the kind of guy who, I think there was a template for him to be like a mid-level star, like a good a good or very good player. But no one, no one in their right mind said, hey, you guys wait a couple years, you'll be arguing James Harden versus Kobe Bryant. How would you do it? What's the path? Oh, well, he's going to, learn how to exploit the rules and he'll get fouls you can't believe and he'll take 153 shot free throws and he has a step back and um, then he'll lull people to sleep and he's just going to play isolation against the entire world oh and he's a really good passer oh okay the passing I can see I mean (laughs) it, it was just just essentially impossible to predict and the last one is Steve Nash And Steve Nash was also aided by rule changes. But I actually equate Nash closer to Curry in this conversation. And the reason is this. Nash's success, and and remember, he was an all-NBA player in Dallas. um, But as a prospect, 
People thought he was far off from John Stockton when he was at Santa Clara. Great shooter, skilled player, crafty, but far off from John Stockton and not physical enough. Well, it turns out Nash, even though he's more slender and doesn't use like uh, low core strength, he pl- he kind of played big. He he knew how to use his body. He would probe with the dribble. And I think the fact that he's a good 6-3, like I've stood next to Steve Nash many times. He There's not a lot of height inflation there. He might I don't know, he might be 6-2 and change barefoot or something like that. But he he's not, you know, Trey Young is just over six feet in socks. Those couple inches matter. And so with Nash, it was, I'm just going to spam the pick and roll. And I'm one of the greatest shooters ever. And he's aggressive. So in his profile, it actually talks about his shooting aggressiveness you know, he doesn't meet shots that he doesn't like. He takes a lot of aggressive shots. They frame that as a negative. Fascinating. Are there negative things that we associate with prospects that can actually be positives? And again, this isn't normal prospecting, right? I'm not talking about guys who maybe could make an all-star team. This is really an all-time, this is a very high level, what does it take to be a superstar? And how reasonable is it ever for these players that we look at to say, yeah, it's extremely unlikely that that guy's ever a superstar. Or I don't see any path for him to being a superstar, so maybe there's some X percent chance that he gets there in a way that we don't know now because of rules or rule manipulation, or he'll find a coach that will allow him to take this thing that is either just considered a commodity, like three-point shooting, or a flat-out negative. I think the fact that Nash was so aggressive with his shot selection, and I talk about this in his all-time player profile, like he was a really good isolation scorer because he would just put you in the blender. He would go at you uh, with dribbles, pull-ups, try to get you in the lane for the scoop, um, all that. The The dude had a left-handed hook shot off the window. Point guard with a left-handed hook shot off the window. Ah, I love basketball sometimes. All the time. Who am I kidding? Okay, so that's the exercise. That's the idea. I have no idea if this even made any sense to anyone. It made sense in my brain when I started this. Um, Roughly 20 superstars of the last 20 or so years. And by my count, about 80% of them are guys who we forecast as having these high ceilings. Now... The obvious inverse or conclusion to this conversation is to, is to flip it around and say, of all the high ceiling guys, what percentage even become, you know, like all-stars? But that's an exercise for another day. Let's leave it at that for now. So my takeaway here is that 80, let's say 80 to 90%, somewhere in that ballpark. In other words... There is some reasonable precedent that 1 in 10, 1 in 8, 1 in 6 superstars, something like that, will be guys who blow through their ceiling. They, they, they get to that next level by taking a path that we can't foresee. Uh, something I'll be keeping in mind as I evaluate young players going forward. In the next episode, or certainly an upcoming episode, I will look at something I alluded to at the beginning, don't have time for it today, 
which is uh, the growth of shooters or what it takes to really be a high-end shooter. Do we have some solid predictable data that forecasts that? So that'll be an interesting sort of addendum to this conversation in terms of growth. And another thing that I wanted to mention before I go is I've been trying to add quick hits or small thoughts that I'm sharing with patrons. They're patron-only posts. Either tier, just sign up to become a patron and you'll get access to them. The idea is that there's a lot of research that goes into pods or videos or things like that that I don't necessarily have time to include in the core material. Also, I sometimes provide additional thoughts on data throughout the week or uh, trends that I'm seeing in the league. So check that out. If you're a patron, if you're not a patron, you can, of course, sign up over at patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. And that is it. I will talk to you guys in the next episode, and I hope you are having a great day.